0: Well, good morning, church family. As Michael said, I'm Steve Renna. I'm the administrator here at First Baptist Church on Bayshore. And I have the privilege of bringing God's Word to you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 7 through 19 today. As we continue in our series, He is Greater Than Religion. And we're going to jump in very quickly. In verse 7, it says... Excuse me. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Our message this morning is titled, With Him and Sent to Preach. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. You see, as as we see how we can be with him And the result of being with him, it's important to first understand how we got separated from him in the first place. In Genesis 2.15, right after God created man, it says, then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So God creates man, and then he creates a place where man can literally walk with him, to be in fellowship with him. And this place is filled with all of the provisions that we needed. But before you imagine yourself lounging on a blanket next to a river in the garden, it says that we were placed in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. Likewise, when John shared his description of heaven in Revelation 7:14, he said, therefore they, that's believers, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So before the fall of man, man was to work. And even after believers see him face to face, we will work. If you've ever wondered what your purpose is or why you're here, you were created to be with God and to serve him. But Satan tempted Eve to disobey God. God and eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And while Satan may have instigated the conversation or even planted the seed of temptation, it was Eve who sinned when she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So Eve disobeyed God so that she could build her own power instead of relying on his Just as Satan wanted to elevate himself above God, so did man. And the moment that Adam and Eve ate of the tree, verse 7 says, their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. They were naked and afraid. And so they covered themselves. They hid from God. They recognized in that moment that they had been totally exposed to God. They had been living in the light. And now they began to hide and to build walls between God and themselves. And God knew that once man started on this sinful path to self-righteousness, that lust for power would not stop with knowledge. In chapter 3, verse 22 of Genesis, God says that man might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So man would seek not to receive, but to take eternal life from God. And so God drove man out and stationed cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every direction to ensure that man could not take that which was God's alone to give. Man was separated from God because of our sinful desire to elevate ourselves rather than to humble ourselves before him. Now, Fast forward to chapter 3 of Mark. Uh, Jesus had been in Jerusalem, and he was growing in popularity. And in verse 7, it says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. Now, before we see who's in this crowd, we need to see who isn't in the crowd. Who is not seeking Jesus? Well, the first group that's not in attendance is the religious elite, the very people who should have recognized the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus has already had multiple run-ins with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you were here last week, we saw Jesus heal a man in the synagogue, which angered the Pharisees because he had broken their man-made religious laws. The Pharisees had taken God's law and they had perverted it. Their 613 additional laws turned God's law away from its purpose, which was to highlight our sin and our need for a savior. And they turned it into a system where one could falsely believe that they were right with God by checking boxes. And we do this today. It's just a different list of checkboxes. Went to church this morning. Check. Withheld my road rage when I got cut off on the way here. Check. Gave a little bit of money. Check. I'm a really good person. Check. Woohoo! look at all these checks. God must be so impressed with my righteousness, he has no choice but to let me into heaven. I don't need a savior. I'm already awesome. Uh, what's that over there? Um, you need help and you're hurting? I'm a little busy checking boxes. I'll get to you when I'm done. See, the laws of the Pharisees and religious rules today often turn people inward and restrain us from acting with compassion. It hardened their heart, and they went on believing that they could achieve salvation rather than to receive it as a gift. It does the exact same thing to men today. We falsely build up our own righteousness and self sufficiency instead of relying on God's grace. And his provision. Sin hasn't changed much since the garden. (laughs) It separates us from God and it blinds us to our need for a savior. The religion of the Pharisees and religion today often fails. But he is greater than religion. The second group of people that are not in the crowd are the political leaders and the wealthy. In Mark chapter 3 verse 6, it says that after Jesus healed this man, the Pharisees went out and they immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. The Herodians were a wealthy, self-indulgent, and corrupt political party. They were all about fleshly desires. And they joined forces with the Pharisees, a group who opposed them on nearly everything. I mean, this would be like if the Democrats and the Republicans miraculously joined up on something. I mean, one group had built a religious kingdom, and the other group, a worldly kingdom. And those kingdoms were sufficient for them right until Jesus became a threat. So the religious and the political leaders, desperate to hold on to their positions of prominence and authority, sought to kill him. And we see this today. A godless world that wants to attack Jesus and anyone who might follow him. The successful, wealthy, powerful men were blind to their need for a Savior. They're blind to their sin. They saw no need for Jesus. Listen, we can't be with Jesus if we don't see our need for him. The first step to being with Jesus is recognizing your need for him. The scripture's clear on this. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And no manner of worldly power or accomplishment, religious or otherwise, leads to salvation and eternal life. Ephesians 2.9 says, salvation is not by works so that no one can boast. We cannot earn it. Jesus is very clear in this. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We need him. Our sin has separated us from him. We need him. And so now in verse 7, Jesus withdraws from the religious and political leaders That were conspiring against him and based on this threat we could be tempted to believe that Jesus withdrew out of fear but we've seen Jesus threatened before when Jesus was rejected in Nazareth all the people of the synagogue got together and they wanted to throw him off a cliff but he passed right through their midst. Later in Luke chapter 7, verse 30, as he's teaching in a synagogue that he is from God, men attempt to seize him. But we learn that no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Nothing can stop Jesus from fulfilling his mission. He doesn't withdraw out of fear. He withdraws from those who have rejected him. And he seeks those who desire him. And so we turn our attention to the crowd, to that group that was Coming after him. And in verse seven and eight, it says the crowd came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. So some people came from very close by in Galilee. Some traveled for days from Judea and Jerusalem in the south and from all of Phoenicia in the north. Others traveled for weeks from Idumea in the southeast and from beyond the Jordan in the east. Idumea is where the Edomites were from, and they were enemies of Israel. Perea to the east was controlled by Herod and the Herodians who wanted to kill Jesus. And Phoenicia was filled with people who worshipped false gods. And yet the people are still coming to him. And they're not just coming to Jesus from far away geographically. They're coming to Jesus from far away spiritually. But why? Why are they coming after Jesus? Second half of verse 8 says, When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you were the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So the first group that we see in the crowd that's coming after him are those with afflictions, those who have a need. And those in need heard that he was using his power to heal people. So they didn't question his power. They came for it. And this is a great place to start. I mean, shouldn't we seek Jesus? This is seeking Jesus because you recognize his power is good. But look at verse 9. See, Jesus knew the crowd was coming. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. In 1989, in Sheffield, England, 96 people lost their life as a crowd literally crushed them against a fence. They were suffocated to death. They were just there to see Liverpool play in the FA Cup. They were there to see a soccer game, the most popular sport in the world. Football's like number nine behind cricket and table tennis, but I mean, you know, who's counting? But this crowd, this crowd was coming for Jesus. Or were they? See, Jesus knew they were coming, and he also knew their intentions. They wanted his healing power so badly that they were willing to crush him to get it. They didn't care about him or a relationship with him. They just wanted his power to heal so that they could go back living their best life. And many today want the power and benefits of Jesus healing and eternal life, but they don't want to know him or to be with him. They don't care about him. They care about how they can benefit from him, how they can use him to supplement their own life. Listen, surely you've had a relationship where you realize that that person didn't love you. They loved what they could gain from you. And this is not the right foundation for any relationship. Love is about giving. It's not about receiving and so jesus says to his disciples have a boat ready so that i can create distance between them and myself and you go what wait what this isn't the jesus we've been taught about right he doesn't create distance does he Well, he separated man from his presence in the garden for the same sinful desire to take power from God rather than to be thankful for the power of God. In Luke 17, 33, it says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Listen, why you come to Jesus matters where your heart is matters now here's what the what's amazing about the heart of jesus in hebrews 4:15, it says when jesus landed he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick Jesus still heals the afflicted, not because of their desire, but because of his great love and compassion. But I want you to see something. The healing that they received was temporary. It was temporary. That Jesus even raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus would still die again. But after healing a leper in Luke 17, Jesus turns to that man and he says, your faith has saved you. Jesus performed miracles to reveal his heart and to show that he is the son of God. But miracles of physical healing don't save. Your faith saves you. And faith is more than just believing that he exists or that he has power. We see in verse 11 that even the demons recognize that he's the son of God. James 2:19 says you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So you can believe that he exists. You can even seek and be the recipient of his healing power and still be no better off than the followers of Satan who refuse to accept his authority. Well, that's a scary statement. And in verse 12, Jesus silences those demons, the unclean spirits, because while they're there in the crowd, they are not with him And therefore, they're not qualified witnesses to the truth of who he is. Maybe you're here today and you believe that he is God and you want him to save you, but you still feel distant. My friends, that distance will remain until you accept him, not just as savior or healer, but as Lord. Desiring to be with him. Stop trying to fit Jesus into your life, into your construct. He doesn't live in our construct. We live in his. If you need evidence of this, open your eyes. <laughs> Romans 1 says, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We are without excuse. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Being with him requires faith that accepts him as he is. As he has revealed himself in creation and in the person of Jesus and in Scripture. Where we learn in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're not allowed to accept the pieces of God that we prefer and reject the ones that we don't. If we do not accept him as he is, we're putting our faith in a false God and a false religion. See, we love the idea of Jesus as Savior, but we struggle with accepting him as Lord. And listen, there is not one without the other. Jesus is either your Lord and Savior, or he's neither. You cannot separate the two. So the second step to being with him is accepting that he is Lord. Stop seeking to use him and start submitting to him. But thankfully, in the crowd, there's more than just the curious, more than just those seeking only to profit from God. There's the, there are those who are actually seeking to know him. Look at verse 13. It says, and when he, he went up to the mountain and he called to him, those whom he desired, and they came to him. So Jesus separates himself from the crowd. He goes up on the mountaintop to pray. He prays all night long. He calls those whom he desired, and they came to him. And Jesus is calling you out of the crowd and into intimate relationship with him. The reason why megachurches thrive today is that so many are more comfortable being an anonymous spectator of God, all the while convincing themselves that this is enough for salvation. He is calling you to stop hiding from him in the anonymity of the crowd. He's calling you to live in the light and to be with him. But separating yourself from the world, separating yourself from the crowd, takes action. Separating yourself from the crowd requires repentance. It requires admitting your sin and having a desire to turn away from it. That third step to being with him is repentance. Repent of your desire to build, all, build self at all costs so that you can lean on him again. Repent for placing your faith in idols... Instead of having faith in him. And when we recognize our need for him. And we see him for who he is. There is no other option but to repent. Because. Jesus Christ came down from heaven to be born of a virgin in a filthy manger, to be rejected by his chosen people, to be rejected by his family, to be falsely accused, to be spat on, to be flogged, to have a crown of thorns put on his head, to carry his cross until his body collapsed under its weight, to be pierced, to be crucified. And he did it all for you and for me. And no matter how we try to hide from him, he still sees. All All of us. He saw all of our sin and he still went to the cross. He paid our debt. He purchased us with his blood. And when he said on the cross, it is finished, the earth shook. The veil was torn so that we could come to him directly. No longer is there a special class of people who mediate the knowledge and presence and forgiveness of God to the rest of believers. He has become our mediator he is the one that reconciles you to God this is the gospel message that he made a way for us sinners to be reconciled to God and this miracle lasts forever no longer do we need to be apart from God thanks to the blood of Jesus repent because of what he has done repent because he is worthy he is worthy. And maybe today you're thinking, well, I profess these things to God, but I can't seem to change. You hear his call, but you see a mountain between you and him. And you've tried on your own and you've failed. You feel unworthy and that you can't change. Well, guess what? <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you can't, but there's still hope. Because Acts 13 uh, Acts 3, 9, 19, excuse me, says, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of Of the Lord when we answer his call and we accept him as Lord the spirit starts to work inside of us so that we can become who God has created us to be because when Jesus paid our sin debt on the cross he made it possible for the Holy Spirit the paraclete the comforter to literally live inside of us you can't be any closer to God than to have his spirit living inside of you And because he takes up residence in you, every believer now has the right and the authority to read and interpret and apply his word. You have to repent and accept him as Lord, but he is the one who saves. People don't change. Jesus changes people through the power of the Holy Spirit. People don't change. Jesus changes people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is on display with whom he chose, whom he called. In verse 16, it says he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. A quick look at the disciples shows that they had the same sin. Peter had a temper in Matthew 16 when Jesus tells his disciples, I have to die and be raised to life on the third day. Peter argued with him. And Jesus turned to him in Matthew 16, 23, and he says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but of the things of man. Peter would deny Christ three times. James and John had anger problems, wanting to call down fire on anyone who would not receive Jesus. Listen, cancel culture is not new. In Mark 10.35, they're seeking elevated positions of authority on his right and on his left. That's pride. Thomas was a doubter, Matthew a despised tax collector, and a cheat. And yet all of the apostles who truly accepted him as Lord would be radically transformed. The difference between true disciples and the crowd is that true disciples recognize their need for Jesus. They repent. They accept his lordship. They respond to his call, and they allow the Spirit to bring about change. Remember, Jesus is up on a mountain, and he calls them to come to him. So he first meets us where we are, but then he calls us up to the mountaintop. But if you ever climbed a mountain, <laughs> it's not easy. When I was younger, I I loved to camp and hike and I loved the idea of packing up everything that I needed in a massive backpack and traipsing off into the woods for days. I loved this sense of self-sufficiency. But when you're hiking up a mountain, you learn very, very quickly that all of those things that you thought you needed were a burden on your back, a weight holding you down. And as the Spirit starts to work on you, the Spirit starts to remove all of those unnecessary things in your life. The Spirit helps you to shed the weight of your idols so that you're no longer thinking of how hard the hike up the mountain is, but how beautiful the journey is even in the midst of challenges. This is the sanctification process for every believer. But some of us, need to be reminded of 1 Thessalonians 5.19, where it says, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. You see, as the Spirit is helping us shed the weight of our idols, we keep running around and picking them up and trying to throw them back in the backpack. <laughs> Remember that accepting Him as Lord is an intentional decision we make Daily. Accepting him as Lord is an intentional decision we make daily. If you're here today and you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, but you're not growing, you're not connected in a life group, you're not discipling anyone, you're not giving, you're not serving, you're not offering your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, as is your true and proper worship, you may be guilty of quenching the Holy Spirit. No matter where, what stage of life you're in, the Spirit still has work to do in your life. But there's still hope. In Philippians 1:6, it says that we have this guarantee: He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will change you. My wife and I were uh, hiking up Torque Mountain in Ireland. And, each time we came to a precipice, we we, we thought we had made it, <laughs> but it just kept going and going and going. But thankfully, we endured to the end, and that's exactly what he calls us to do. And Torque Mountain has a has a very jagged peak, and the path up there comes around the backside of the mountain. And as you're climbing up, you can only see in one direction, and your field of view is very limited. And it's not until the last three or four steps, when you summit that jagged peak, that you see that there's a whole world on the other side that is filled with unimaginable beauty. And while you were down in the valley down here, you didn't see it. But now you're seeing it from a whole new perspective. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things Of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to Him, and He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Listen, before the Spirit comes to dwell in us, we're blind. We can only see one direction, and it's very limited, but with the Spirit, His Word comes alive. We once had a worldly point of view, but now we have a spiritual point of view. We see things from His point of view. In John 15, 15, it says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Proverbs one twenty three says, Repent at my rebuke, then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. Like a good father, Jesus walks with us. He teaches us. He equips us for the task ahead. He reveals truth, and he changes our perspective on everything. And it's this perspective that was missing in the religion of Jesus' day and in ours. And so in verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So Jesus appoints the 12 apostles armed with this new perspective to replace the leadership of a failed religion where God was not present. And he plants God's church with those who are with him, a priesthood of believers to grow his kingdom. Now, before you think, well, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, this, this, this only applies to the apostles. It is because of the obedience of the apostles that the next generation came to be with him and to preach. And because of that generation their obedience, the next generation came to be with him and to preach. And if you believe in Jesus today, it's because someone before you was with him and they preached the gospel to you. This is why the priority of every generation is the next generation. Remember in the garden, man had two jobs. To cultivate it and to keep it. We keep it by building each other up, not tearing each other down. We strengthen one another's relationship with the Father by engaging in prayer together, in Bible study together, in doing life together. And then Jesus says, go back down into the valley, off of this mountaintop, out of this church, into the crowd, and preach. Preach. And we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that preaching is only for pastors. Religion today says that you're only qualified to preach if you have a seminary degree and a pastoral title. Now listen, don't get me wrong. Ephesians 4.11 says pastors are gifts Christ gave to the church. We need them. We need shepherds. But to preach just simply means to announce something. And he says, you are qualified to speak the truth in power because you are with him. Because the spirit is in you. So he does the equipping. But our idea of evangelism is that we invite someone to church so that the pastor can share the gospel. God's plan for his church is not centralized, it's decentralized. He calls all who believe to go and tell people what he's done. Go and be a witness. Go extend his ministry. Cultivate the kingdom. Preach the gospel for it is the power of God to save. Matthew 28 19 says go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit if we acknowledge our need for him if we accept his lordship if we repent if we answer his call we will be with him and here's the result (laughs) don't miss this Because if you're with him, this better be true. (laughs) The result of being with him is we become servants on mission, preaching the good news, keeping and cultivating the kingdom of God, knowing that he is the source of our authority and that he is always with us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice made on the cross. Lord, thank you that you are with us. Lord, that you equip us. And Lord, I pray that this morning, if there's somebody who has not accepted you as Lord, that uh, today would be the day that uh, they would submit to you. And Lord, I pray for all of us who have been following you, that today's message, your word, would... Light a fire unto us to, to serve you more and to let the Spirit do the work that you have called in our life. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.